before Jesus crashed into the religious scene as an adult, as a rabbi, uh, before he kind of kicked over all the prejudices that had accumulated in the uh, sort of Jewish religious scene over the years, um, he was preceded by another guy. He was preceded by a guy called John the Baptist. Um, And John the Baptist is a fascinating character. He kind of bridges the Old Testament way of doing things with the New Testament, with this new covenant of grace. And uh, John the Baptist is um, a character that kind of lived on the outskirts of society. He was one that shouted inward saying, you're doing it wrong, you need to listen to me. He lived frugally. It talks about him eating sort of... uh, Um, locusts and things and it talks about him living austerely um, on the outskirts in the wilderness and he stood in very stark contrast with all the uh, priests and scholars and uh, guys um, that generally people looked up to. He was very much this old school prophet come to call a sort of corrupted uh, religious group of people to uh, truth again. And it's great because uh, the scripture tells us that hordes of people went to hear him. People uh, did get tired of this well-fed, domineering, authoritarian uh, religious elite who just made them small and feel uncomfortable and guilt-ridden. I don't know if you've ever encountered sort of religious people like that, but they just made you feel worse. And after you'd gone to a meeting, you kind of, oh, I'd have felt better if I'd have just gone down the pub. And so the the hordes just, they found John a, a great fresh, a breath of fresh air. Someone that would strip religion down to its uh, pure points. And he spoke uh, predominantly about repentance and forgiveness. He said, you know what? You've got to come to God and just confess your sins and receive the forgiveness. And he would say some very unflattering things about the religious elite who thought they had it all under control and that uh, it was often the the common person that that he would talk to that would uh, just feel persuaded that what he was saying was uh, uh, God's truth. And a mark of being persuaded by John was that he would take you into the Jordan River, this big, fast-flowing sort of uh, um, strategic river in Israel's geography, and he would take you down and you would get baptised by him. And all the religious elite would get upset because it was kind of undermining what they were saying. But he was saying, you need to do it. Get uh, cleansed. Allow uh, God's forgiveness to wash you clean. And just the people loved it. Um, And as with all these Bible stories, it's inspired artists over the years. Um, This is uh, a painting by possibly the greatest of the Dutch painters, uh, Peter Bruegel. And uh, this is, you can see sort of John the Baptist in the middle. He is this very plain, austere guy. He's got uh, no uh, uh, sort of Nike trainers or uh, uh, sort of fancy clothing. Simple in the middle. And then he is surrounded by the population. 
a huge variety of people, all that come out in all their colours and variety and diversity. And uh, Bruegel wants us to see just how popular John the Baptist was and, uh, uh, and how everyone just wanted to hear what he had to say. And it wasn't the, the sort of kings and rulers that sort of drew near to him and... and and took on board his preaching. But it was the commoner, the person uh, that had to go to work Monday to Friday, that was in no position of control or power. And it is them that listened and, and took it on board. And as John preached about holiness, as he talked about conduct, as he said, you know, sacrifices aren't enough. You have to be good and kind and generous. He also spoke about someone coming. He spoke about the Messiah, this anointed one, this one that the Jews had long looked for. If you've got a Bible, uh, turn to John chapter 1, verse 29, and it says this. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one that I meant when I said, A man who come." Uh, comes after me, has surpassed me because he was before me. And there's this wonderful reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, I ha- was reading something today that we, can't, we shouldn't really refer to the birth of Jesus because Jesus was never uh, uh, born. He was incarnated. He took on flesh. He has always existed. And here we have John the Baptist saying to us, Jesus has always existed. And it was at this moment that he just took on flesh. And so he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave the testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on me, uh, remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus, he said, come and you will see. So they went and, sat and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him, and it was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him. They obviously had a good connection. Um, over the years, um, I'm, there's many good things that I don't think my brother has been the first thing to hear from me. I don't know what your relationship with your siblings are, but they obviously got a tight connection. And the moment Andrew hears this good thing, he wants to tell his brother. And um, he says, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And Andrew brought Simon Peter to Jesus. And Jesus looked at this new recruit. And he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. And both mean rock. So we are told in this account how Simon Peter 
the one who's been, uh, who wrote this letter, First Peter, that we've been looking at all year, we've discovered in this moment how we first met Jesus. He has written this great letter that, that, that we have been unpacking and enjoying and finding challenging. And this is his moment of introduction. This is his moment of his testimony. This is how he first encountered uh, the Messiah. And how did it happen? Well, John the Baptist uh, says, this guy is the Messiah. Andrew, who had been following John the Baptist, discovers that this is the Messiah. And he comes and tells his brother. And what does his brother do? His brother comes and sees. And we have this very simple, that is the Messiah. Come and meet the Messiah. A very simple calling of come and see. This guy is important. This guy is pivotal. Come and see. And this pattern of come and see is what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. This is what fills churches up with people, is when the Christians go to others and say, come and see. I was talking with someone earlier today and they would sort of uh, come into church and they were seeing, seeing a couple of people that they knew on the street and they really just wanted to stop their car and say, come and see, come to church, come and discover this Jesus. I don't need an elaborate argument. I don't need a demonstration of power. I just need you to come and meet Jesus. And now, with that background in mind, let's read what Peter says. If you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. So last time we looked at uh, Peter, we, we read, we read the, uh, the beginning of verse 15. But I want to finish it off, because this is one of my uh, uh, favourite and most challenging passages of 1 Peter. Um, it, it just always strikes me as something that I need to keep... Uh, on the uppermost of my mind. And it says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We know 1 Peter. We have been looking at it for some time. We know what Peter has been instructing these disciples in Turkey again and again. He has been telling them, do good. Be gentle. Be respectful. Honour those people around you. Honour the leaders. Honour the civic authorities. Honour the law of the land. Honour your bosses, honour your spouses. And Peter expects that as Christians behave like this, that they provoke positive, searching questions. I don't know if you've ever been asked these things. How come you do what you're told all the time? 
How come you are so conscientious at work? Why have I never seen you lose it? Why have I never heard you swear? Why do you not behave the same as all the other people around you? How come you are so generous with your time and your money? Why don't you gossip with us? Why do you speak so well of other people? Why do you avoid the evil that we get up to? Peter expects Christian behaviour in society will provoke questions. He says people will see your goodness and they will want to know why. And Peter says you should anticipate the questions. You should anticipate people wanting to know why you are like you are. Peter uses uh, uh, this word apologia that um, has sort of English um, equivalents. But he expects Christians to be able to give a reason for the hope they have within. They uh, are to give an explanation of their beliefs, of why Their conduct is different from everyone else. Why they stand out as different. There is a challenge in Peter's words. Don't pretend to be surprised. Don't pretend to go, oh, and then someone asked me uh, why I was different. Peter says, no, you should not be surprised because you stand out. He says you shouldn't be passive. Why are you different? You don't just sort of sink into the background, pretend, oh, you know, it doesn't matter, or I don't want to answer, or I'm a shrinking violet. Peter says, you are not to be like that. If someone asks you, you respond. You are on the front foot. And he says, don't be dismissive. If someone's asking you why you don't get up to what everyone else gets up to, don't just dismissive as, oh, I don't like it, or I don't... It is an opportunity, a God-given moment of providence, where you get to talk about the hope that you have. We don't get to be timid and we don't get to be afraid because these are God-ordained moments for us to speak out. Now, before I talk about speaking out, I want to remind us of who we're talking to. Because we can look around us and I look around my, uh, myself, especially at uh, sort of uh, work And we think that people are doing okay. We do. They do many of the same things we do, and we think they're fine. But let me tell you, contrary to the outward appearances, everyone who doesn't know Jesus is inside desperately longing for someone to step up and speak out. Now, their arrogance and pride and pig-headedness can get in the way. But in their inner being, they are desperate to hear the truth. They look fine on the outside. They can be healthy. There are non-Christians that are healthier than Christians. They exist. There are non-Christians that are wealthier You know, the blessings of God doesn't mean the Christians are the healthiest and wealthiest. There are non-Christians with influence and power. There are non-Christians with 
families that get on better and tighter friendships. And there are people out there that we can find ourselves envious of. You know, we've got Jesus, but we would quite like a slice of their life as well. But we need to remember that they don't know Jesus. That they don't know God's love inside. They don't know they're valued. They don't know they are precious to their maker. They don't know they have a purpose. They don't know how to live well. These guys that are driving on the right side of the road and paying their taxes, they are just mimicking goodness because they don't know how to do it themselves. When they are nice to someone, it is not because Jesus is inside of them. It is because they're pretending. They are mimicking goodness. It is not the same thing. And they have no hope for the future. None. They may have paid into a nice pension pot and and think they can retire. They may have chosen uh, a nice retirement home to fade away and die in. But they have no hope for the future. There is no eternity to look forward to. This is it. And they are in a state of desperation and poverty and blindness. They are ignorantly stumbling around in the dark, heading for disaster. Let me read you something from uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Mere Christianity. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like God's could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And this is every single person that you know that doesn't know Jesus. They think they can invent some sort of happiness apart from God. And out of all that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history, Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. All of these are the long, terrible story of men and women trying to find something other than God will make, which will make themselves happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us. Invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. That is the key to history. Terrific energy is expended. Civilizations are built up. Excellent institutions divide. But each time something goes wrong, some fatal flaw always brings the selfish and cruel people to the top. And it all slides back into misery and ruin. In fact, the machine conks. It seems to start up all right and runs a few yards and then it breaks down. They are trying to run it on the wrong juice. 
And that is what Satan has done to us humans. So when you look out at the people you live amongst, that you talk to on a daily basis, that you work alongside, that you have fun with, you need to be reminded that this is their situation, that they are running the machine on something that won't run it. They may not look like they need Jesus, but they're an engine that is designed to run on that relationship with God. And it is guaranteed that if these people do not eventually find God and run on their relationship with him, they will become wrecks. So the book of Acts gives us this great story of the birth and expansion of the Christian faith. You know, it really, uh, they start sort of huddling in a room and suddenly they become this uh, uh, go get them type of fellowship that just reaches out um, uh, uh, across the Roman Empire and beyond. And um, it starts with Peter and those original disciples that followed Jesus. They're the ones that knew him, that followed him for those years of his earthly ministry. And, and after he ascends to heaven, they're still there looking forward to what he's going to do. And then the Spirit comes and they spread out. And so it starts with this small group of people. But as you read through Acts, and I encourage you to read through Acts again, there is this extraordinary story of it touching life after life, community after community, town after town. Um, And then we have this incredible story of the Apostle Paul. He kind of single-handedly takes Christianity by the scruff of the neck and takes it to the far reaches of the Mediterranean region. He goes, uh, uh, he manages to travel even all the way to Spain. Now it is right to realise that Paul had a peculiar calling. He had a, a power and a calling that was uniquely his to reach out to the Gentiles and tell them about Jesus. And he had a unique success in seeing that happen uh, and saw lots of new church communities planted. We are not necessarily all called to travel through the Mediterranean region suffering shipwrecks and imprisonments to tell people about Jesus. But... Paul is just the working out of Peter's advice of always having a hope, uh, always having a reason for the hope that is within. If you can, turn to Acts chapter 25. You should all be very familiar with this, but um, I'm going to read it out. It says this in Acts chapter 25, verse 23. So Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and then transferred to Caesarea. And then he'd said, you know, I'm a Roman citizen. Uh, I, uh, I want to be uh, treated uh, uh, fairly. Um, and, and so they're going through the process of this. This is just a, like a legal proceedings. And listen how it goes. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp 
and entered the audience room. If you've ever seen the sort of the Queen on TV, you can imagine the sort of things uh, that royalty love uh, 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 to make an entrance with. Um, and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. You know these are important, powerful people who have the power of life and death over all sorts of situations. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he has done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner onto Rome without specifying the charges against him. And so Paul is brought to the most powerful of the land to decide uh, uh, how he should be sent uh, to Rome. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. I wonder if you were um, in chains and you were taken before the magistrates or the houses of parliament or the houses of lords or... Um, some great institution of power and told to make an excuse for yourself what you would say. This is what Paul says. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know that I have uh, lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought uh, to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus as Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I wonder what shame Paul felt as he said that. But it's part of his story. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon King Agrippa I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, the very language that Jesus spoke, 
Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? And the reply, succinct and clear, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, now get up. Stand on your feet. I have, appoint, uh, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. We have this very clear depiction of people that don't know Jesus as being deceived by Satan and living in darkness. There is no halfway house. There is no fuzzy grey area. You are either one kingdom or the other. And Paul is making very clear this in his uh, talk So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and all in Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God, and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul is about, uh, 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 is engaged in this process of uh, state execution. He is defending himself at the slightest invitation from the most powerful, from the most prominent, from the cleverest, uh, from the richest people around. He launches into his story of why he follows Jesus. The book of Acts is written by Dr. Luke and Dr. Luke has travelled with Paul a number of times and Paul tells us this story not once, Not twice, but three times. Luke includes Paul's testimony in the story of the Acts of the Apostles. It is hard to overestimate the importance to Paul, to church, um, and the success of evangelism, Paul's testimony. He uses it again and again to share Jesus. As we listen to Paul giving his testimony, I suggest we take notes. It's been a very good testimony. It has lasted uh, uh, the test of time. Um, Because I think there are some very clear uh, values that he embraces. Firstly, when Paul talks, it is, in this point, a personal perspective. He is talking about his own journey of faith. When we talk to people that that don't know Jesus, we can use a lot of different strategies. It's very easy to start, perhaps, by arguing about the existence of God. Or perhaps, 
by arguing the existence of the God of the Bible, or perhaps by arguing about the authority of Scripture, or perhaps talking about good and evil. And all these are possible, but Paul tells his story, and his story is told again and again. And this morning I suggest that our personal story often has a power that any grand philosophical approaches uh, just withers in front of. People can often have arguments and objections to all that we say. In my years of trying to tell Jesus, uh, trying to talk about, I have met every possible uh, defence against believing in Jesus that, um, uh, that I can conceive of. But there is something powerful and peculiar in your own story. Paul gives us a little bit of drama. He tells us how opposed he was to Jesus, how uh, dramatic uh, Jesus' confrontation of him was, and how he has ran with the transformation that has wrought in his life. He talked about his own resistance to Jesus and how all those questions faded away in the presence of his saviour. And it means if you are listening in, you become persuaded that there has been a change, that there has been drama, that this God is not just someone to philosophically argue about, but a person to engage with. Thirdly, Paul says very clearly what his new understanding of Jesus is. He thought he was an evil cult leader. Now, he acknowledges this Nazarene as God the Son, his own personal saviour and light to the world. When we share our testimony, it is good not to say, oh, you know what, Jesus is my Messiah, I wonder who is your Messiah. It is not just someone to add to a series of gods or idols, but he is the exclusive one and only answer. And so we need to be clear about the change that has happened, and we need to articulate it and let them know what the challenge is. If you want to know uh, the, sort of the biblical summary of what this gospel is, uh, I always like turning to 1 Corinthians 15. It's kind of like the oldest summary of the Christian faith. And, and Paul kind of brings it out in the middle of his testimony. And fourthly and finally, he doesn't say, have I entertained you? Aren't you interested? Isn't that diverting for a couple of minutes that you've heard that? He says, No. You all need to make a choice now what you do with this story. This Jesus is calling out to each one of you. Forget signs and wonders and miracles. He has changed my life. He is the light of the world and you need to make a decision. And there is that call for the people listening to us to change their minds. To hear our explanation, our testimony, our story and go, you know what, I need light too. I've been faking it all these years. And with all this talk, I don't know whether you've noticed, but Paul is bold, but he is gracious and respectful. 
He comes to King Agrippa with a degree of deference. But he comes with a persuasion and power uh, that you can imagine just, uh, uh, just really impresses his audience. It is never an argument we're trying to win. It is never something that we are just trying to uh, bulldoze other people's identities. We get to share with them our story and invite them to personally respond to this Jesus, the Saviour. Um, Louis Giglio, who's done uh, uh, some great videos and uh, runs a passion church, um, he says this. People say all the time, I don't have a good testimony because they think their story has to involve some dramatic story of change from bad to good. But Jesus didn't come to save people this way. Sin doesn't make us bad, it makes us dead. Jesus came to save by bringing the dead to life. And that is an amazing story. Whatever story you have, it is an amazing story. Whatever story of death to life you have, it is an amazing story. You may not have been knocked off your horse by a load of light in the sky, but whatever your story is, it is a movement from death to life, and it is miraculous, and it will be helpful to other people. Earlier this year, um, I took a run through Buckham Park and the, uh, um, the sun went down a lot quicker than I expected. And, and I thought, you know, what, I'm going to end this run very quickly. And I thought I'd take a shortcut. I took a turn too early and stumbled into a load of uh, brush. Um, and it was utterly black. And there were some walkers that I just legged it particularly fast um, around, so I didn't want to go back the way I came and be shamed to, so that I'd obviously taken a misstep. And so I just tried to plough through all this brush, but it was utterly dark. I could not see a thing, and um, I just stumbled around, didn't know which direction I was going. I got scratched up and torn, and I got nowhere. The ignorance, hurt, and futility... Of that is the reality of everyone that doesn't know Jesus. They may look okay, but they have a pride that they don't want to say that they've taken a wrong turning and um, they're in a right mess. Everyone that you know that doesn't know Jesus is in darkness. Only Jesus is the light. It's not Jesus and philosophy, Jesus and science, Jesus and literacy, or Jesus and anything else. As we live good lives among these fumbling, darkened folk, we need to be on the front foot with our apologia. So I wonder, do we remember why we're following Jesus? Do we remember why we're here? Are we here just because that is a pattern of life that we've acquired over the years? Or is this guy, Jesus, someone still important to us? Do we remember that first decision that we decided that he was the way, that every other way was bankrupt? Do we have a moment where uh, we renewed that deliberate intention to follow Jesus 
It is uh, just really human uh, to take things for granted and then wander off and then suddenly be reawakened again. And lots of Christians, if... um, Sort of, they became Christians perhaps as children, and then there wasn't this sort of moment of uh, obvious turnaround. But they remember perhaps when they were later on, and, and, and they went the wrong way, and then suddenly they remember, you know, I really need this Jesus because every other way is bankrupt. Do you remember why you followed Jesus? Do you know why you're sat in this hall to this morning? Whatever your reason is. It is that miracle from death to life. It is something that you can use to talk about Jesus. Your story is proof of Jesus. It is not the only proof, but it is one of uh, millions of stories of people finding Jesus. And so I just invite you to remember it again, why you follow him, why you got baptised at Southwater Lake, why you came uh, uh, to a church meeting here, why you confessed Jesus for the first time. Remember it. Write it down. Allow the grace of God that was evident there to uh, flow over you again. Practice it. Practice it in private and in public because your hope might get to be someone else's. On Saturday, the 14th of December, I have invited us into a what looks like quite a secular uh, um, Christmas event in uh, the Buber Centre. Um, Very careful absence of the word um, Christmas and lots of things like Santa Claus. And we've got a table in that place. And um, I've got a few ideas, but it is an invitation for each of you, again, to show this place in Bewbush why they need Jesus. Um, I was talking over with Sam and I was rebuked by trying to do it all on my own. You know, I was just like, I'll run it. It's more hassle than it's worth getting over running. But there is an invitation in these events for all of us to come step forward and go, I'm ready to give a reason for my hope. I do not want to just shine to the background and be a wallflower. I want to let that light into someone else's life. I know we're busy. I know Christmas is full of activity and that you've got things to do uh, that will occupy your time. Uh, My wife has got the most impressive spreadsheet I have ever seen for a timetable. Um, But the 14th of December is an opportunity not just for us to invite people to come to church, but where we go to them and say something. We have got 5,000 leaflets to give out. Uh, we, uh, um, we have got other things that we can do. If you can come up with something else that would be interesting and inviting, we would love to adopt that. So there is a sign-up thing at the back. If it is empty, um, I will happily tell people about Jesus for the uh, four hours it's on, on my own. You know, th- this is why I'm here. But the invitation 
is for some other of you to join in, to allow this text in 1 Peter chapter 3 to actually become a reality in your daily lives. Where someone goes, why are you sitting behind that desk talking about church? I thought church was uh, just something from the olden times. I thought it was redundant and proved to be wrong a million times. And then you can talk about Jesus. And we're also holding two Christmas events. We're holding a songs, stories and sumptuous snacks on the 22nd at 3 o'clock here. Uh, The plan for the food just makes my mouth water as I think it over. And then we're holding a Christmas Day meeting. These are uh, invitation-rich moments where we uh, call people in that we will not be having two-hour worship sessions singing in tongues, but it will be geared to share the good news of Jesus with. So we're at an end, but the challenge is there. And um, it should be recorded on the podcast. And so we hopefully uh, share it with those that are celebrating all sorts of other things that are going on today. Uh, Please bow your heads. Jesus, we thank you that you've been our light And that you will always be our light. I thank you that stumbling around in the darkness is not for us. That we are not misfueled vehicles or running on empty. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would copy Andrew and say, come and see. That we would copy Paul and say, this is my story. That we would heed Peter and give a reason for the hope within. Lord God, I pray for uh, events in the coming month. Lord God, uh, we don't know exactly when Jesus was incarnated, but Lord God, we're going to use this uh, Christmas period in the time to uh, talk about you as much as possible. And Lord God, I pray that you would give each of us in this fellowship boldness, that you would give us... uh, Uh, the right words to talk about you with that will uh, capture the hearts of our listeners and that, Lord God, that we would see people uh, brought into your kingdom, that they're no longer um, running on empty or uh, fumbling around in the darkness, but they are enjoying the light that you provide. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.